Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions. And in this episode, Ian Montgomery, also of Label Sessions, talks to Henry Coutinho Mason. Henry is a leader in trends and innovation strategy, with a career spanning over a decade and offering two books about his practice. The most recent being The Future Normal, exploring how he will live, work, and thrive in the next decade. He's obsessed with new perspectives on what people will want next in business, and Ian finds out more about his obsession. We'll, we'll kick off with a bit about you. What do you. Who are you, Henry? What are you known for? Or what's, yeah, thank, what's thanks so much for having us here. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk. I guess, you know, the reason why you're talking to me was because, and I think where we first met was when I was running a small online business called Dreamwatching, which um, I ran for, well, I joined as kind of employee number one um, back in 2010 and spent 10 years um, essentially running it uh, from London. And, you know, that was an amazing experience. I feel super lucky to, to have done that because it's a small business that had a, you know, quite a big footprint. We reached a lot of people. But I think when I speak to the people that I worked with and, and a lot of clients who, who I came into contact with through the trend watching business, I think they would probably say, you know, the difference or what they came to trend watching for and, and how they saw us as different to other trends and futures people was that we tried to make it really accessible. You know, we tried to speak to our readers and work with our clients really as equals and you know when i was reflecting on this i think probably the reason for that was because i came into the industry this kind of futures industry like my, my dirty little secret <laughs> so to speak was that i was actually a trolled accountant I, I started my career at kpmg as a consultant and I slightly ended up in the trolling business as a kind of accident like i was just a super fan of the newsletter i loved it and I saw this job ad for a senior strategist and I, and I wrote to a founder uh, saying, I'm not senior, I'm not a strategist, but I, I loved it. So I did this kind of huge two and a half thousand word job application, which I didn't realize how weird that was at the time. <laughs> uh, and I basically guilt tripped him into, into meeting me for coffee uh, and then started off doing some freelance work and then ended up kind of, say, running the business for, for a long period. But I think part of the reason was personally why I was really, in, you know, uh, I guess wanted to make the content and the way of writing, you know, much more and more accessible was I didn't feel like I had the authority or the credibility to kind of speak down to people. A lot, I think a lot of a futures business feels like it's people who I know a lot more than you, you know, I'm some kind of mystical genius and I can divine the future speaking to the clients, whether intentionally or unintentionally in this kind of slightly, you know, didactic way. And, and the other reason for, I think, being really focused on on having this this sense of equality and speaking to people as an equal or being a participatory um, approach to futures, if you like, and trend thinking was um, because the trend watching business was also a crowdsourced business. You know, we had this spotter network, which was where we sourced a lot of our content. So it was always kind of in our DNA to say to people, can you help us in terms of, you know, supplying content what have we missed you know here's the early stages of a trend that we're seeing how can you help us refine this is it happening globally and, and so those are kind of two main reasons i think why yeah if you know i, th I feel that or what people tell me 
the, how I come across when I'm writing and speaking about futures and how to approach this is really an approach that says, let's do this together. You know, I'm going to start the conversation, but hopefully we can continue it or you can continue. I don't have to be in the room. And in fact, actually, I was used to say that one of the biggest differences is that, that the, we, because we weren't a consultancy, you know, and we started with a kind of content, you know, grew out of a newsletter. We had a content platform that was our business model. So we always used to say, actually, unlike a lot of other trends and futures businesses where ultimately, you know, again, consciously or subconsciously, they're trying to, kind of trying to sell you some consultancy services. They want you to bring them in. We actually said, we've succeeded if you don't need us in the room. You know, if you can just kind of continue subscribing to our content platform, do it yourself, actually, then we're happy. And so again, it's that that kind of very much baked into to our, from watching now my DNA, I think, was how can I turn you into a trend watcher yourself actually rather than you know need me to be holding your hand through the rest of the process and, and i think you know people have responded really well to that because it feels it, it feels different it's a bit of the opposite to your accounting background i have the same dirty secret i was an accountant when i started my career too i was wasn't a very good one but that background seems to be like come up with come up with a single right answer yeah it comes up with like a single right answer but rather than being like what different things could we do? What might that mean for us? We don't have to get the, the something perfect, but we're going in this direction. And I think that's the thing that was really interesting about trend watching from when I used it as a customer is there's some interesting things over here. Where might that take us versus what do we specifically have to do with it? Yeah. And I think it also comes from, you know, the perspective of being a, a generalist and we were always very proudly cross industry you know and and you know so if you're an expert in an industry and i know you've done a lot of work with transport in the, in the recent thing you know you people do look to you to have a view on where is you know the future of transportation or mobility and you know you, they're there of course that's what they're paying for but in a way you know a client said to me a few years ago he said you know what i do is i you know essentially i bring you in to you know to tell my leadership or show my leadership the things we don't even know we don't know you know, and hope there's a re there's a relevance to him. But he said, you know, I don't want you. It was a it was a private equity group, and you know, they had little CEOs in finance and gaming and healthcare. He said, you know, you're not going to tell these guys the, the the you know the future of healthcare. That's their job. But what you might do is give them an idea from what's happening in the hospitality industry, or what's happening in the retail industry, or what's happening on social media that you know they're not even looking at. But with their knowledge, their expertise they're going to be able to say, well, actually, that's really interesting for the future hospital that I'm building or the future patient experience or whatever it is. And so it's that idea of, you know, being, and that's hard, you know, sometimes to do because, of course, we all know, you know, the the, the online world or just the world. So, you know, it, it, everyone wants to be super specialized, you know, and, and, and of course, expertise has a value. But increasingly, you know, in a world of AI and, you know, all this good stuff that I'm sure we'll get on to talk about soon, there is a value, I think, in someone asking, you know, the kind of naive outsider questions that says, well, this is happening in one part of the world. What if, and, and again, I always used to say to people, you know, we are not, our job is not to predict the future, exactly what you alluded to there. It's to help you ask better questions about the, you know, the potential futures that you might be able to create. Um, because no one knows the future. 
Uh, I say again, if I could predict the future, you know, I certainly wouldn't be standing up and, you know, running workshops or, or you know, standing up on stage. I'd be sitting on my private island somewhere, you know, having, having, you know, having traded my way to billions. You know, it's, it's, that's not the role of a, of a trend watcher of future forecaster. I don't believe it's about, you know, having those conversations. But, but I love that. You know, I think that's the interesting part of our job is to say, you know, it's, it's not just saying, well, I know where everything's going and that's it. You know, then you just say, sit at a desk trading stocks and, you know, hedge funders and the people do that very well. I think the interesting part is sitting down, you know, with people who you know often run some of the biggest businesses in the world or are creating some of the most exciting businesses in the world. You know, those kind of people and say, here's where we are today. What would it look like if, if we created X or Y? And, and again, you know, we've it's been... And I think I've been incredibly fortunate to be able to do that. And with a certain detachment from the operations of a business, be able to ask these kind of slightly naive questions and say, you know, why can you not create a future like this? Um, and as I say, being being somewhat detached from the kind of messy reality of the operation or day to day. And of course, I had that, I had that in my own business when I was running a business. And I know it's not always as easy as that. And there's always a gap between where you know you can get to and or, or where you'd like to get to. But I think there's something, you know, hugely motivating, hugely inspiring, uh, hugely fortunate about being able to have those questions with, let's say, those, the, you know, some of the people who are running the biggest businesses in the world and say, you know, what, what could the future look like now you've seen X, Y, and Z? it's interesting you talked about the transit thing for us but it's like i don't know how to run a railway there's lots of people who are very smart and are doing that but often those people don't have an idea for a station so it's like the ideas for that come from shopping malls from airports from guest experiences in hotels and to me that's the the two worlds have to come together and maybe that's like an interesting segue into the book that you've written so um i think that i, I when i when i read it i i love books that are Last week I had it by my, by my side because I was at home. Josh got it behind him, but yeah, the future normal. Um, I, I I loved it because you've got like thirty different kind of themes and and they're super broad, and you can see how they like relate to each other. But I don't think enough people talk about the the really big picture stuff. Um, so it's kind of refreshing to read a book that thinks and looks at the world at that high level. Like, why did you what what led you to write it, and why did you write it in that way? Yeah. I mean, it's 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 good. Thanks for thanks for thanks for a plug. Um, <clears throat> I guess to kind of take it, you know, in reverse order, what what led me to write the book? Again, like so much of my career, it was a slight accident. So uh, after I left trend watching in, in the pandemic, um, I took a bit of time off, and then was I, you know, just kind of calling, you know, people, touching base with people who I knew, and I had, didn't have actually have any real great intentions to to write another book. And I spoke to Rohit, Rohit Bhargava, my co-author, uh, who's based in Washington. And I'd, I'd literally met him for 20 minutes at an event in New York where we were both speaking in, I think it was October 2019 or something. So it was about six months before pandemic, October or November. And, uh, you know, I was just kind of touch base, you know, hey, you know, how are you finding the industry? You know, what's going on? You know, we're in the middle of, we're in the middle of lockdown. And we kind of got talking and we just realized that we shared, you know, we bonded over coffee and we realized we shared this kind of view that, uh, you know, we were kind of, we, we, we speak in the book about that we're reluctant futurists uh, and what we were often put in this, this position of futurists on the kind of conference billing or whatever it was. 
And I think we were just talking about, you know, the role of futures thinking and that, you know, that that moment at the end of 2020, obviously like everyone was looking for people of, you know, what comes next. Um, but a lot of it was quite dystopian, you know, all quite simplistic, like we thought. And, and so we just got talking and then we kind of said, well, you know, we both got a bit of time. We're not doing as many events. So, we, you know, should we write a book together? And it was amazing. Like, and we spoke about this at, um, when we launched the book. Our experience of writing the book, in a way, is a microcosm of the underlying thesis of the future normal, in that things that start off being kind of remarkable, and then, you know, at this, at, at when they emerge into the market or into, you know, human life, they're kind of this very, um, you know, as I say, remarkable, strange, novel, niche behaviors. But we've done a good job with the book if actually in five years time or certainly 10 years time it looks completely obvious and like I, I, every chapter is unremarkable in fact that would be the biggest mark of success is people look back and go well, why are we even writing about that and, and i think you know that is you know when we were saying to someone you know we wrote this book together having only met for 20 minutes and we did it entirely on zoom and you know back and forth with google docs that isn't not really a remarkable story anymore today but think five, 10 years ago, it would have been almost inconceivable, you know, of a kind of early stage. So there's a kind of interesting, yes, as I said, microcosm of the process of how we hope things will pan out. But there's also this idea that we said, you know, people are so obsessed with the future, but it's too often this kind of sci-fi or dystopian view of the future. And we were like, this is not really the reality of what we're seeing. You know, when we're looking at some of these amazing innovations and some of the entrepreneurs we're speaking to, there's some amazing stuff happening and there's, you know, we, we just felt there was not enough people kind of asking this question, like, as Rose said, what if everything goes right? You know, what if some of these businesses could stay at scale? And that's not to be naively optimistic that all of these businesses will go on to take over the world and, you know, they'll all be hugely successful. Uh, there's a long way to go. An interesting kind of since we've been publishing the book, We've had a few instances, the biggest one probably being Van Moof. So, so every chapter we have, uh, uh, essentially, it, it's all structured around a what-if question. And as you said, there's 30 chapters. We, we call it the kind of executive airport book. And the idea is, you know, you can dip into it. Um, and it's all written, you know, it's designed to be read basically in chunks of 15 minutes because we know no one has any time. So it's kind of, you can skim the table of contents and go, here's an area that I'm interested in, maybe relates to a project, you know, Here's a big what if question. And it's based around an instigator. We call them an instigator, you know, kind of a featured startup or governmental organization or person or whoever it is, but usually a kind of startup that is essentially doing something quite radical, doing something quite differently. And it's our way of using that as a vehicle to ask a question, you know, what would the world look like? What would life look like if, if this became commonplace? Um, and we look at, you know, one of the chapters, we look at Van Moof uh, around the 15-minute city and, and you know, micro-mobility and how that could change the way we live and, and work and experience cities. And, you know, whatever it was last month, a few weeks ago, Van Moof went bust. And I did a little post that said, kind of, you know, we were waiting for this moment, <laughs> you know, as, as you write a book about the future. It's kind of an inevitability that you will get it wrong. On some about one of the specific instigators. Well, this is what I this is what I posted about. You know, there is a kind of a skeptic's view who would say, "You've written about this. They've now gone bust." You know, ha ha ha! You guys are idiots. 
And again, it goes back to this idea that we were talking about earlier. You know, it's not about predicting the future per se. You know, we're not saying Van Moof is suddenly going to be the next Ford and we're all going to be riding Van Moofs everywhere globally. You know, that's, it's going to be the way we get around cities. The point of that chapter was about saying, you know, the idea of a city that is much more livable and the 15-minute city, and there's a whole other conversation about the whole conspiracy theories about how that's been taken over. But this idea that people want to have access, it's basically about convenience, you know, it's about accessibility and it's about choice. And it's about, so, you know, that is, that is a, a, and again, our model of how to spot the future is about less ask a question that speaks to basic human needs that are going to be around not just for 10 years but 50 years 100 years you know and, and this idea of what do we look for in our local environment it's access to things right? sometimes that's convenient things sometimes that's entertaining things sometimes you know whatever it is right we want things and that's one of the chapters that i'm actually proudest of because it's is again what we try to do in the book often is and you know rohit's background is he's got this whole series about the the non-obvious trend guides. Uh, again, I think we've done a good job if we take something that you've heard of and give it a new spin, you know, give give you a fresh perspective on it, help you to see something different about it. So there, you know, a lot of people, I think, have heard of the 15-minute city and the benefits that that might bring. A lot of people might have, you know, have heard of micromobility and be aware of, you know, of course, the disruption and changes happening in that, in, you know, that space. Me and Rogo were in conversation, and it struck us that not many people had put those two things together. And so, what we said is, you know, a lot of the, the thinking around the fifteen-minute city is about essentially physically reconfiguring the city and putting doctors, you know, with it every fifteen minutes, putting amenities, moving them into your neighbourhoods. And we said, well, that's, you know, that's quite hard. And, you know, there's a, there's a reason why cities kind of have a law of, you know, they, they spread out and they're a bit messy and inconvenient. And, you know, it seems to be fairly global. And that's going to be, require a lot of top-down thinking. And we said, but hang on a second. You know, there's all of these electric micromobility services and vehicles, you know, from e-bikes to scooters to quadricycles and, you know, some fun stuff happening there. Uh, to autonomous micro buses that you know can kind of have dynamic routes and you know we're seeing all of this innovation in the in the kind of uh, you know as i say the micro mobility sector and we said actually the kind of the core of what that enables to, to happen what it enables people to do is to travel further faster so suddenly the your 15 minute city if you're on foot your 15 minute city is quite small if you have a patchwork of, you know, hopefully electric, but, you know, kind of more diverse transport options, some of which will be public, some of which will be semi-public, some of which will be shared, et cetera, et cetera. Or, you know, a more affordable e-bike solutions or whatever it is. So, you know, you can, you can physically travel further faster. So the city can stay the same as it is today, but in 15 minutes, you can cover a quarter of it rather than only 10% of it. And so, as I said, you know, there's a few chapters like that where I feel that we've really taken a topic that, you know, everyone was talking about, but through the medium of an instigator, you know, an example, you can really understand. It's very tangible. It's not us kind of, you know, hypothesizing what if this, you know, magic business came into existence, this magic product, just saying, no, there's a product here that's currently maybe only being used by a few people. 
But what if it scaled? What would this, you know, what would the, what would the, the life, what would, what would the landscape look like? Uh, and, and then at the end of every chapter, we just ask a few questions again to someone who, and really those questions are written at people who aren't you know, in, in that immediate industry, who are not in there, because then they'll, you know, they'll be looking at this already. But if you're a, a restaurant or a, you know, a, a hospitality provider or a doctor or whatever, running a healthcare business like we were talking about earlier, the 15-minute city and electric micromobility, you know, might just change the way you think about the, the landscape in which you operate. And, the, you know, the same with our chapters on the future of work, you know, the same with the chapters on sustainability. You know, if you're running a hospital, you, you might not be thinking about these questions every day. But, and again, this is what I love about the way we look at the future. Once you've got something really, as I said, really tangible, once you've got an example of a businesses which are already operating and we've helped bridge that gap around here are the bigger questions that this, this business poses to the wider landscape, to other industries. Again, the feedback we get is suddenly sometimes people can feel that's such an accessible way of thinking about the future because it's very easy to turn to your colleagues and say, oh, there are these three businesses doing these three things. What does that mean for us? And everyone's going to have a point of view, even if it's just saying, well, that's not going to have any impact on our customers, our users, our employees, whatever it is you're, you're having that conversation. But most of the time, people go, oh, yeah, that would be quite interesting. You know, how is that going to change our business? And that's so much, as I said, more, more accessible. We go back to the, to the, at the start, we were talking about what am I known for? That looking at business innovations as a way of, helping you ask better questions about your possible futures, it always inspires conversations. I, I don't think I've ever done a workshop in the hundreds of workshops that I've run over the past 10 years. Doesn't matter what job function you're in, you know, you don't have to be in the innovation team or, you know, the marketing team and be a kind of creative in inverted commas, and that's a horrible word, to have a point of view about how this might impact your, your business. I sort of compare and contrast you with a bit with Nick Badminton. We, we, did, we did his interview a few weeks ago, but he's done his futurism book. And his book is very different to yours. I think he mentions dystopia about 100 and something times. It's, it's quite dark. It's quite ne not negative, but it's a here's a view of the world that could be quite bad. How do we make the world better? How do we, how do we avoid this dystopian futurism? Almost the way of interpreting it. But I watched this, we'll take mobility again because I'm a nerd about it. I watched this in real time in Toronto where you actually need the Knicks of the world that are looking at, we're, we're heading in that direction of dystopia. The 15 city minute city thing in Canada is crazy because the nut jobs all come out of the woodwork. <laughs> like Edmonton's like probably the hotbed of people hating on the 15 minute city. But not that long ago, we had restaurants going, if you get rid of the parking in front of my street, in front of my restaurant on my street, my business is going to die. Now you have them going, hang on a minute, lots of people are turning up on electric bicycles that the city has and, and business is booming and, it's a to and I have a patio outside instead of parking and my world has changed and they're not mobility experts. That's why they thought losing parking would be a thing. You actually need to look at the world of here's, here's a bleak thing, here's a dystopian thing, but you then need to go look at the world of what are the signals, what are the really optimistic things, what are the things outside my direct space and like not enough people go and get at, if, if I'm if I'm someone who's thinking about the future, I want a Henry and I want a Nick. I want, and, and the pair of you coming together is actually like, that's the best way that we can actually go and drive change. Um, so I think I think it's a really interesting thing that like your books have come out about the same time and they're very, very complementary despite being quite different. Yeah, I 100% agree. You know, and I think if, if there's, you know, 
if there's one thing the last you know 10 years or so and i'm sure it's longer than that but that's kind of my you know my my 10 12 13 years is my my career so been through a few of these cycles and it's patently obvious right <laughs> the kind of you know blind techno utopianism is not <laughs> going to come to pass right if we just let leave things um you know to themselves right you know social media the arab spring remember when social media was going to connect us all in this kind of harmonic utopia where we could all listen to each other's views and become connected well, of course you know it didn't happen like that trump china you know brexit um but you're right you know our book is probably 80 percent optimism 20 percent pessimism or more like pessimism you know uh we just ask the question and they're sprinkled in the book what if it looks like, you know, but let's be mindful of this, this, and this could happen. There, there may, could be negative consequences, et cetera, et cetera. But that is definitely not the focus because we just felt there was enough in the market doing that. And I, I said, I, I haven't read Nick's book yet, but I, I will definitely read it after this. As you say, you know, they need to be read together. I want to, I want to switch to AI a bit. So you, you're pretty you know, crazy, frequent, opinionated poster on the topic of AI and how that relates to companies today. And I suspect you do it partly because it, it's good for the algorithm, but you're very knowledgeable in this space. Um, tell me, like, I'd love to like get into your head around AI away from the jet AI crap. Um, but I think, I think this is a space that's super broad, but you have quite a strong opinion of what's interesting, where the trends are here. And you're launching something in that kind of space around like visual AIs, right? Yeah, well, it, again, <laughs> seems to be a common thread through a lot of my career. It was a slight accident how I ended up, you know, writing so much about AI, thinking about it. And it was really um, one of the clients I work with, and I've, I think I've done five sessions at their kind of CEO day. Uh, it's a group of companies. And so, you know, we were slightly looking <laughs> looking for new things to talk about. because He's like, you know, you can't just come and do this, the same presentation or the same structure. And so the, the founder of the group said, well, you know, can you, can you do something on AI? It's a big topic. And this was back in, in January. And so I said, I said to him, look, I'm, I'm not an AI guy. So, so firstly, I, I actually bought a friend of mine who is an AI entrepreneur and she's raised over $100 million and been an open AI partner for, for kind of three years, beta partner. So she was able to give the kind of credible perspective on what's actually going on under the hood, which was great. But I kind of was thinking about, I said, well, what do I do from that? Uh, and I suddenly realized that actually I basically had a, a, a model to approach this because last year, every client I worked with, you know, all they wanted to talk about was a metaverse. So, and, you know, kind of now in the benefit of hindsight, I wish I'd written a bit more publicly kind of, you know, how I was a bit of a skeptic, but because I was like, well, I, I don't really have that much to say about the metaverse and, and, you know, I don't know where it's going. And, but what I do know is about basic human needs and wants. So my presentation around the metaverse was, the metaverse is kind of very uncertain about how it pans out. But what I believe the metaverse is really about, or, or what it could be about, is about kind of status and identity and community. Because as I said earlier, my model of thinking about the future is always to say, yes, there's a lot of stuff that's changing. There's a lot of exciting new things coming into the marketplace. But fundamentally, the way to understand how to think about these and specifically think about these in the context of your organization is to think about the basic human needs and wants that they might serve and that 
are important to your business. You know, so if you're a bank, it's going to be about trust and it's going to be about security, right? Those are the things that your customers are always going to want from a bank, right? You know, if you take it all the way back to social media, you know, join the conversation. You know, does a bank need to join the conversation? Probably not, no, because, you know, is that a core fundamental human need that, you know, customers come to a bank to do? You know, if you're a mobility provider, you know, to stay with that, you know, basic human needs and wants are security you know uh reliability you know again do i feel safe on the public transport is it convenient you know information transparency right so when you're looking at social media you know if you can use social media to share information about the service you know make that accessible that's going to be really useful to your to your passengers you know how to keep people safe etc etc probably there's a you know as a as a basic human need or want right around sustainability as well right you know it might be less uh, prominent in the hierarchy of people's needs but you know would people rather take a clean you know <laughs> zero emissions uh form of transportation rather than a dirty polluting smoke one but that might just be around health you know and their impact they no one wants to sit breathing in smoke so but i digress you know the, the kind of the model of change just says look let's think about what people really care about and and so you know when i was looking at AI and, and kind of porting this this presentation around or this presentation idea, this model of says, you know, in a moment of uncertainty, and especially technological uncertainty, where no one knows where this technology is going. And actually that what was really useful for me was the the kind of total disagreement amongst the AI community itself about whether this is the greatest technology that's ever going to be invented and it's going to save the world, or the AI doomers and you know. It's going to blow up the world. It's an existential risk. And that was really useful because it meant that I could come in and say, look, why on earth would you get a presentation about AI from someone who isn't an AI person? And I realized actually being able to say to people, look, even technologists don't know where this is heading. You know, there's a million examples. They're surprised about its own capabilities. And these are the people who are literally building it. So let's just agree that on the kind of medium to long-term time horizon, no one knows where this technology is heading. But what I have spent the last let's say 12, 13 years doing is thinking about how in moments of uncertainty how and change, how an organization should think about where it goes, what it does, you know, where it places its bets, how it should think about these new technologies. And ultimately, there's an amazing Jeff Bezos quote, which I use in all my presentations. And he says, you know, people are always obsessed with what's going to change. He said, I'm always asked at you know, conferences, you know, what's the future of retail, Jeff? You know, what's going to change? What's the next 10 years look like when it comes to shopping? And he said, actually, for me and my leadership team, the far more interesting question is what's not going to change. Because he said, you know, we know, know with absolute certainty, and everyone in Amazon knows, that in 10 years' time, no customer is going to come up to us and go, Jeff, you're doing a great job, but I wish you had higher prices and slower delivery times, right? It's just never going to happen. So he said, you know, we, those are our North Stars. You know, he said, you know, choice, you know, convenience, speed of delivery and, and low prices. Those are the things that we can invest time and energy and effort in. The technologies will come and go, but, you know, everything we do is about serving those basic customer needs. And so also, I said, you know, how many organizations have that level of clarity over the basic human needs and wants that, you know, they need to be working for for the next 10, 50, 100 years. Uh, you know, it's a kind of sobering moment for most executives. You know, if I asked everyone in the organization, what are the basic human needs and wants that you serve? And does everyone give you the same answer? I, I suspect most organizations, they, they don't. 
Um, and so when it comes to AI, you notice we've hardly talked about AI in this question, because it was this idea that actually having this framework that says, you know, yes, there's a whole load of change, but looking at all of that change through the things that won't change is a very human perspective. It's not a technological conversation at all, but it's a conversation that not enough organizations have. And, and then the other piece of it, you said that, you know, we, we, we launched something new. Um, just last week, actually, I launched a collaboration with this amazing visual illustrator, visual strategist called Natalia, based here in London with me. And um, she's been, she's, you know, she does uh, a lot of scribing work for conferences and does you know, these visual workshops that you will have seen um, where you know, illustrators capture what's being said on stage in keynotes and produce these little graphics. And, you know, we felt that it just was not enough humanity there was not enough you know, visual thinking in the always conversation about ai and, and also there seems to be a lot of the conversation about ai seems to kind of be it's either very personal it's like this is how you should prompt you know this is how you can get chat gpt to do five things in your job and get it to check your emails or whatever it is that you personally can become an ai empowered you know super worker or it's the kind of mckinsey c-suite like you know generous ai is going to add three trillion dollars to x industry and this function but like most well certainly most of the people i deal with and i suspect most of the people that you deal with are in organizations they work in teams and they are you know part of a team that launches a product or a service or an experience or a campaign you know you launch initiatives right you, you know there's a c-suite i think in kind of big 10-year you know time horizon at the macro level and then, of course, there's the skills you need in your day-to-day -day job. But most of your work is still done and it still will be done in the AI in, you know, world, working with people to deliver a project. And there's some really cool stuff happening in you know, AI innovations in that space and thinking about a product and the service campaign experience level. And so we've created these, you know, it's, it's essentially a kind of a graphic illustration that says the first one's focusing on marketing and advertising um, that say, you know, how should you think about AI? How some kind of really inspirational case studies and, and some bigger trends, opportunities, whatever, whatever you want to call them, uh, that you can, again, goes back to this idea of what I'm trying to always do is to give people something that you can sit down with your team or with your clients and say, in two or three minutes, we've seen this. This has inspired us to ask, these questions around what does this mean for our organization you know could we use some of that thinking in you know in our current projects in our future projects and it's been a lot of fun as well this podcast is brought to you by label sessions the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people around the world we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders just like the people you hear on this podcast for live sessions of advice mentoring or sometimes to collaborate on ideas to find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. I really like the the, the Bezos thing about what 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 won't change, what hasn't changed. And I think of the if you look at it in the context of work and AI, so much stuff in AI, like the easy low hanging fruit in AI today, is actually taking a lot of work away. Like, don't make me think about that thing. There's a lot. I love the Rory Sutherland quote: "Like much work these days is ass covering disguises rigor." like fill in this form, go through this process, people in a change program is that this initiative, and we're probably getting slower and slower, but no evidence to sh demonstrate this fully on like 
just things feel slower these days. Why does that bit, why does it take longer to build that building? Why does it take longer to launch that product, whatever it might be? But actually that to me is like where there's really interesting stuff in AI there. It's like, I don't really want to be wrong. I don't really want to be fired, but like, there's lots of work that I do that do I really need to do this? Should I do this? Is this worth, is this adding any value? Does it make me happy? Does it stimulate my brain? Do I enjoy doing it with my peers? Whatever it might be. I think that is so fascinating, but we kind of like don't necessarily acknowledge the, how we work is still very much email, Excel, PowerPoint, meetings, minutes, documentation. Well, actually, how, how do we do this in a way that we can have a great conversation, have a big idea and go test it? And if we're wrong, what do we learn? How do we go and improve it? without having to spend all the time being like, here's all the documents that we spent hours and hours writing, worrying about have we really used the right word, are we going to upset somebody, blah, blah, blah. I think that's way more interesting when it comes to AI, which is like, but Max, the Bezos thing hasn't changed. We just want to do good work and have a positive impact on, on the world. And is that a bad thing? So, um, so yeah, I think like more and more people who think about the human side of it, the, the better because there's just nowhere near enough people being loud enough voices in that kind of space rant rant over <laughs> well I, I think you know you had tom goodwin on before and uh, i think he he posted you know the other day that i know i'll get the details wrong but it was kind of like you know i had you know maybe i can do a couple of hours of good work in a day right and and sometimes maybe only in a week but the rest of your kind of working week is so filled up with as you say kind of busy work or you know, slightly negotiation and logistics. And I think, you know, I think his point was, again, he has the luxury of a kind of independent consultant. But I mean, you know, we at least have the luxury of carving out those few hours, right, to, to actually sit and have, you know, ask those, those bigger questions or think about it. You know, I look at some of my friends' diaries, you know, in large corporations, and it's like, you know, seven hours of back-to-back -back meetings and calls. And as you say, is is a lot of these organizations, it is all coordination, or it seems to be, and, and reporting and checking and, as you said, kind of logistics around work. And, you know, I think one of the best books of the last decade is, is a Bullshit Jobs. Uh, I forget who did it. Dave, Dave, David, someone. And, yeah, if, if AI could free up, you know, some of that formality you know logistics uh, or reduce it then i think it's very interesting of course the the reverse is also true you know a bit like let's remember the kind of lessons of social media that the utopian outcome doesn't always work if it becomes trivial instead of taking you 20 minutes to you know request some documentation from someone if it takes 20 seconds does the volume of like you know paperwork just expand even further because it you know both from the kind of requester and the submitter it becomes easier so do we end up like you know creating even more quicksands to wade through because it's just easy to to do that uh and look i suspect the reality is the organizations that find ways to resist that bloat you know that ai kind of logistical coordination bloat will be the ones that win because they will be the ones that can move faster and and use ai to increase efficiency rather than use it to kind of get this nightmarish to use the word dystopia scenario where it's kind of you know ais are reading other people's ai driven 
requests and you know you can easily paint a kind of horrific but you know you think about the transition from a pre-digital era world of work to the current you know world of work you know in fact you talk to people um you know when when emails didn't exist and you know powerpoint presentations didn't exist and you actually had to kind of you know print out and send someone a document if you wanted them to read it and you have to send them a document you couldn't just cc the kind of whole department you really had to think about whether there was a cost to producing information and distributing it. You made damn sure it was important to that person, <laughs> you know. Whereas now it's it's trivial. And and I remember I, I I've I've looked for this article for ages and I can't find it, so I have no source. But I remember reading a fascinating story in the FT about the the law of unintended consequence, and I've spent hours actually looking for this. <laughs> Uh, so you'll just have to trust me. But there was this amazing story about how, you know, when DARPA and, you know, the US military first uh, kind of funded the internet, part of the business case, and it was talking about the law of unintended consequences in, in innovation. And it was this idea that the US military funded the internet and the electronic distribution of communications because it was at a moment in the post-World War II era, and I think it's Korean War and, you know, Korean War going into the Vietnam War, of having this global theatre of operations and, and the idea, the business case, if you like, for funding, you know, digital communications was that it would reduce the cost of military operations because you could manage, you know, remotely, essentially, you know, distribute information instead of having to send it, you know, via paper or, you know, telex, whatever it was. And of course, what happened was in the 10 years after the introduction of DARPA you know, and, and the kind of electronic communications, actually the US military travel budget went up exponentially. And, and you know, this article saying, you know, it, or, uh, this book said, you know, why was that? And when they kind of looked back at what had happened, of course, what had happened was, you know, I can't remember the detail, but directionally the story was, you know, instead of people being responsible for kind of, you know, X number of people, you know, whatever it was, probably 150 because it was Dunbar's number. You know, you, you had smaller units and it was a more distributed chain of command kind of in Second World War and, and you know, pre-digital era, pre, you know, pre-electronic communications. And what happened is when you, you know, allowed people to communicate electronically, all that happened is people could, you know, be aware of a much larger footprint and, and the reporting, you know, lines became you know expanded essentially and what happened is in the end as we know right from the pandemic and coming out of a pandemic is electronic communication works up to a point but then you will want to get together and physically break bread you know have moments where you connect with those people individually and so you know the, the theory that rolling out and having you know being able to communicate electronically will depress your travel budget you know we know right we've now got 50 years of proof that the exact opposite happens, right? You end up getting on a plane more. You end up, you know, going and, and having, you know, these global operations and you still get together and you still spend fortunes doing all of these things, you know, and it's, it, it, you know, it is that, as I said, the law of unintended consequences. We are very, very bad. And I think we always will be very bad, if we're honest, at predicting all of the outcomes of any change. And I make no, you know, uh, profession to be any better than anyone else at doing this you know i am equally as as 
have as many blind spots when it comes to predicting your future. Hopefully, though, as I said, what, what we, you know, we do do when we ask these questions is to say, well, at least just let's explore some of the, the, you know, the scenarios, some of the, the opportunities. There was someone I was talking to for one of these um, a few weeks ago, and he talked about knowledge being, well, more knowledge is always a good thing, and I agree with that to a certain extent. But there comes a point where so you can have more and more information, but it doesn't necessarily lead to you making a better, faster, more successful um, decision. Yeah. Um, because you'll never have all the information. So there's that extent of the Bezos quote of like, if the anecdote and the data are in conflict, I'm inclined to trust the anecdote. <laughs> um, I, I love so there's something really interesting around that, like how that relates to AI. Well, I love that. And that's, that's one of the things that I, I've actually been banging on about for a number of years now. And in the first book I wrote, this is one of the things, is the role of data in decision-making and especially in the innovation process. And one of my big theories is, and I think AI is kind of supporting me, so we'll get to that in a second, but, you know, historically, and especially if you're talking about, you know, investing in big physical infrastructure, a lot of the kind of, you know, the, 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 the business world or in the, the kind of field that we're in, right? The kind of futures, forecasting, market research, intelligence, you know, all of this. But if you were a decision maker, the rational decision was try and collect as much information up front to kind of de-risk your decision making because your decision is kind of, you know, quite binary. You know, you're building a factory, right? It's going to last for 20 years, whatever years, expensive capex. And you want to make damn sure you get that decision right. And so that was, you know, very much the rational thing in the kind of, pre, you know, again, the pre-digital era. I think what that has done is kind of left a, a brain print, a legacy that is actually really damaging. Because I think, you know, the, 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 the correct approach to decision making now, tied to your kind of anecdote and data thing, is to make bold decisions that you don't really have any data to support. You know, you have an anecdote, you have a hunch, right? The organization, the way they create things, you know, they launch innovations that are, that are ahead of the marketplace because they, there's no data to support that. You know, they just have a, a visionary leader, founder, whatever it is. Says, I have a hunch, you know, I think this is the way the world's going. But what you could do instead is place, you know, perhaps multiple slightly different small bets, collect the data in real time, and then see which one is working and then, you know, reallocate your resources. Because you don't need to get it 100% right on day one. You know, it's not a factory, right? You don't have to build that factory and get it right. You know, it's just so much of the things we're doing, you can test digitally at relatively very low cost. As I say, get data in real time about what is working. And then iterate and refine and, you know, use that to, to shape your... your. So, so I think the mindset of a, a, a you know, business operator, a leader, whatever shouldn't be how do i get all the data to support my decision making in advance that's the totally wrong way of thinking about it decision making is what very weak qualitative signals can i ingest that allow me to to you know construct a, a hunch driven narrative essentially around an opportunity for my business fully in the knowledge but it might not be right but how can i launch that into the marketplace as cheaply and quickly as possible and maybe there's, as I said, maybe there's three or four of them where I'm, you know, very relaxed that they're probably going to be wrong. But how can I then gather the data to see whether, you know, how to make them right and how to scale that? And that is, you know, a, a real challenge for people, you know, organizations who, you know, whether that's individually or, or culturally, 
all of those, you, you know, we spoke about form filling and business cases, you know, they are set up to avoid that uncertainty, right? And, and, and eliminate it. And that's just not the way the world works. There was another great book years ago, but I remember reading, which I thought just captured this so powerfully, uh, which was, I think it was either a Bain or an Accenture consultant or someone. And it was kind of a big bang disruption. And it was the idea that the kind of the adoption curve has moved from the kind of traditional bell curve that we like to think, and you have your classic model of kind of, you know, early adopters, whatever it is, you know, you know, slightly earlier, later adopters, but still ahead of a mass market. And when you get in, and their thesis was what we've now moved instead of that smooth kind of gradual curve, it is a shark fin that essentially goes from, you know, very small to almost vertically up. And then can drop off straight, to, you know, almost straight away. And this, you know, especially in the digital worlds, we've seen whether it's Zoom or Peloton. You know, um, Peloton's not digital. But in the pandemic, we saw a whole load of industries. Or ChatGPT, yeah. Uh, but I guess again, what we were, like we were saying with kind of people going bust, individual businesses may come and go, but you know, the challenge for a business or the opportunity for a business, I should say, is kind of positioning yourself for those kind of shark fin disruptions you know those vertical almost near vertical adoption curves are you able to if not create them with the ideal situation or, or, or at least be a fast follower and then on the downward slope you know have you invested so much that that's going to kill the business or can you kind of you know gradually you know tolerate or, or manage that either gradual define or move on to an, another curve, you know, be, be ready for the next shark fin. Uh, but it is a fast, you know, it is, it is a tough world for innovators out there, as we know, because, you know, things come and go at the pace seems overwhelming. But again, it goes back to that Bezos quote. The world is overwhelming. You know, the market is complex and chaotic. The only thing you can do, I, I really believe, is to focus on, as we discussed, is to focus on the things that won't change for your customers and, and just make sure you know you continue to innovate iterate you know all of those kind of cliches around those core human needs and wants and, and that will give you a stability and an anchor that that will help you know you and your team avoid the kind of shiny object syndrome there's a really interesting thing about looking from the perspective of infrastructure and again i'm a bit of a mobility nerd but the the Elizabeth line. It's been transformational for London. There was years and years worth of business case work that went into what will this, what will the return of the investment be, blah, 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 blah. And it was wrong. It wasn't like, it was, it was a, it's been a more positive return on the in, in investment already. It's taken a long time. It went over budget, blah, blah. But you could have made that decision based upon the anecdote of how many times have you not gone somewhere because the central line was too because the central line's too busy, too hot, too crowded, and you don't want to deal with it? Lots. Build something new. I'm oversimplifying it, but it's like, when can you take a big bet because of an anecdote rather than spending all the time sifting through something to try and make it like pre-rationalize something that you know and you have the gut feel is the right thing to do? I'm conscious of a time, Henry, that I could talk all day and I and I still get shit from the team of like all my interviews last longer because I have a great conversation with you. Um, but like all, throughout this history around trends and futures, where do you go? How do you build this perspective? Like, how does, how do you take all that information? Where are your sources? What do you want to share with people of, this is a little bit of my process about how I do it. That's a great question. And, you know, trying to distill it down into some, some, some useful thing. 
So number one, as we've just been discussing, it's not always about having an insane volume of data. You know, sometimes it's just about having a single data point, a very qualitative data point where you think that is novel, that is interesting. And most crucially, that could have wider relevance to other organizations. So the, the bar that I'm always thinking about when I'm reading or whether I'm talking about or whether I'm publishing and writing is, you know, could someone in almost any role and any function and, you know, in, in any industry, I mean, it's not always, you don't always tick all of those boxes, but could people who this is not immediately relevant to call their team or call their clients into a meeting room and have a kind of a 20 minute, half an hour up to, you know, 90 minute discussion about what this single example shows, you know, for the future of X, future of their organization. So to give you just one example of, you know, seeing a single data point that triggered a trend, which, you know, this was probably five or six years ago, but I'm still writing about a lot, still use it, still see it popping up was uh, Allbirds created a um, new kind of rubber sole ma made from um, plant-based, uh, they call it sweet foam. So it was instead of using fossil fuels, it was made from sugarcane, essentially. It was a kind of rubber derived from, from renewable resources, sugarcane. And what was really interesting about that when they did it, whenever it was kind of 2017, 2018, they open sourced it because they said, you know, we are essentially a minnow in the in the shoe, you know, the, the footwear category, right? Nike and Adidas, they produce billions of shoes. We are a tiny startup. Like we, our focus is sustainability and we believe that, you know, the industry should move to this kind of, you know, this model of, of a, instead of using fossil fuels and, and non-recyclable rubber. And, you know, the minute I read that story, I just thought, wow, that is a really interesting, very transferable position. You know, there are, many organizations in many different industries that are working on not just an environmental problem, but it could be a social problem, you know, it could be something else where actually what they are doing could be scales to the wider industry. And, you know, I just thought that is a really provocative, interesting, powerful, you know, position of leadership to take. That's this, you know, it's a very powerful position for a brand to take. And, um, you know, so that, that, there's something in this. And then you start looking for other examples and, you know, anyway, I think we found some, you know, very soon around, uh, you know, other things that organizations are doing at the time, uh, people have continued to lean into this kind of this open source, uh, so all birds have continued to do it. They just produced their net zero sneaker and they've open sourced the playbook for that. So it's become part of their brand. But what was really interesting actually is, is when I was looking for kind of other examples of brands, kind of like giving stuff away. And we've seen it in industry after industry. There was a, a manufacturer of kind of food takeaway trays. That PFAS is a big problem. If you know about that, it's kind of the forever chemicals which you know coat these things to make them waterproof and greaseproof. A manufacturer said, you know, this is an industry-wide problem. We've created a PFAS-free uh, waterproof recipe, but we're going to essentially open source the recipe. We saw it in uh, around you know data and and I think it was um, Bloomberg Philanthropies they you know essentially signed up all of the big mobility providers so they got i think it was ford but they got uber and lyft to kind of you know share their data into a kind of you know a public sandbox if you like to help share with local governments to help them redesign cities or you know design cities around to minimize congestion etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's this idea of kind of saying look there are bigger problems um you know not just environmental 
but what was really interesting was I was doing some research. Actually, Volvo back in the late fifties, I found a story about how I was literally about to say. Know, so, so they they had uh, you know the engineer who created the three point seatbelt, and we know it's basically the only design of a seatbelt, right? And and one of the reasons is because Volvo they they. I mean, it wasn't quite called this, but essentially they had an open patent, right? They had a, a you know a patent that allowed anyone else in the industry to do that, uh, to to use it. And you know, and when I was reading about that, it's still part of a kind of a Volvo brand story. You know, they still talk about how their invention was given into the industry, and you know, it's helped save millions of lives over the next 50, 60, 70 years through the automobile era. And so when I present, I kind of you know use that as a kind of a rousing story about you know how. You know, it makes a couple of points. You know, number one, you know, trends are often there might be a shiny new blockchain or you know, plant-based rubber or whatever it is. There's a kind of shiny new spin on on the innovation, but the underlying thinking around, you know, differentiation. You know, speaking to a customer, basic customer need, safety, security, whatever it is. You know, sustainability, positive impact is probably you know, there's there's a universality to that. Um, and and so yeah, that was kind of a, you know great example of how a trend is kind of timeless and novel at the same time and and spans different industries. The other kind of tip that I always share with people is is now in, when it comes to watching trends and spotting future, is actually ten years ago it was much harder, right? Because you know the the content ecosystem was was you know much less well developed my secret is i kind of try and find the four or five people in every industry or topic who are just prodigious you know so there's a guy i follow online who just like is my go-to source for sustainable packaging you know he ever anything of interest in that space you know he's he's the expert of that there's a now a friend of mine who's against sustainable fashion you know she just writes about everything interesting in sustainable fashion you and mobility right if there's anything that's happening in kind of the intersection of cities and, and mobility you know i know you probably have posted about it uh so it's finding those you know 30 40 50 people for me you know who are kind of topical experts and then you know essentially you know, not just stealing their their, their ideas because always a, I'll add the layer of idea. They will to come at it from a very industry perspective. What you know, they will be my news sources. I guess what I am interested in about is being having that diversity of perspective and being able to say, you know, okay, well, I see that what is happening in sustainable fashion, packaging, and maybe mobility. You know, there's a column thread around X, whatever it is. Uh, that is interesting and, and it's joining the dots that that's my role but that the secret is just to find the four or five people and the three or four you know news sources or whatever it is who, who you know you can reliably um guarantee you will will be on the cutting edge of surfacing the most interesting innovations in that space i love that it's like you're we, we probably have like a handful of people who are our, like pull it threads people like you, Bronwyn Williams, Tom Goodwin, Nick Abbott, like if you want to go pull on the thread, we'll go to you guys. <laughs> and like that's um it's, it's it, I think it's something really interesting on like how how do you then change the way you work to make so that you can go to those people that pull on that information, new possibilities open them open themselves up in ways that we don't necessarily always take best advantage of. Um Henry, I could talk to you all day. This is love this has been lovely though. I'm really pleased that like, third time lucky we got the recording in the can. So um, thanks so much for persevering with it. 
Um, well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to work with you on this. No, awesome. ditto. I love what you're doing. And I think, you know, the, the truth is, it is really hard for corporate professionals to, to do this all the time because you have busy jobs to run. You know, you have organizations to run. And so, you know, I think being able to tap into uh, as people, you know, that just have more time. And I always say, this is the difference between, you know, me and a client is I just have to do this all day, every day because that's my job, if you like, that's the role I've carved out. You know, they don't have that luxury. What they have the luxury of, of course, is, is deep sector expertise. And so combining those two perspectives is where the magic happens. And being able to, you know, use the word pull on a thread. I don't knit the jumper, you know, <laughs> I just pull a thread. You know, I use the analogy sometimes, uh, I, you know, do some work with, with a consulting client and they kind of, you know, they do a long-term project. I come in, throw some hand grenades, but you know, and, and either blow shit up and get people thinking, "Well, that's our business destroyed." Where do we? And then they look to the consultancy to go, "Well, how do we rebuild from here?" Or perhaps more positively, I come in, get their head spinning. They get really excited, and then they go, "Okay, you know, our head's spinning with all the opportunities, but now we actually have to go do them." Let's work with you know a team to to do that. But it's um, it's a really fun fun role to play. We're the best job in the world. Genuinely, well, I, I wouldn't want to be responsible for running a railway, running a bank, but like this, this is far better. Than <laughs> um, I respect the wall. Yeah, no, well, thanks so much for having me on, Ian. It's yeah. been a pleasure. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast nowhere your platform of choice, and of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com. <laughs>